0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the novels that are getting us through the coronavirus. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm an author and a papier-mâché replica of The Giving Tree. Joining me is writer and the unlikely successor of a political dynasty, Ella Bridger. Today we're talking about Curtis Sittenfeld's American Wife. Hi, friends. Hello, pal. Here we are again.
1: Another Here week we in the book.
0: Here we are again. I'm absolutely loving it and I've loved this book so bloody much. Yet another one of the catalogue of I'm reading a thing and won't stop
1: shouting at you until you start reading it. I mean, I wasn't sold. I've got to say, the premise of read this book, it'll make you fancy George Bush was not one... (laughs) It was not one that I personally felt... I didn't feel any compulsion to fancy George Bush. However, I have read it and can confirm that regrettably I do indeed fancy George Bush. And I would like to put a... Not a trigger warning on this, but... I know my family sometimes listen to this podcast. We're gonna to have to talk a lot about sex, so maybe just leave this one out. There'll be another yes. one next week. There's so that is this is oh, the this sexiest stuff. book we've done for ages. For me, the sexiest since the other Billing girl. Just putting it out there. Which wow. I think there are comparisons to.
0: Yes, actually. And I also think this is one of the best books I've read in terms of narratively satisfying sex in terms of like the sex is both hot in itself but also the kind of sex that is happening tells you a reflects and tells you a lot about the relationship the characters have you know
1: oh my god so i have when i've talked to people on the phone in the last 5 days i've said you should read american wife because it's fantastic but one of the things i've said is it's very sexy and the sex all matters that's exactly it the sex all matters and that kind of
0: sex who it's with and the thing is she has sex you don't hear about because it doesn't it's not important
1: yes which i think is and so good also it's not like the fact of having sex it's how they're having sex and it's what who's doing what to who in what way tells you so much about who they are as people and what they want from each other absolutely i think I, I like everyone knows about the bad sex award and so
0: few people talk about good sex awards and they deserve to happen because i know this firsthand writing sex scenes that are narratively satisfying and sexy to the reader is incredibly hard and curtis Sittenfeld does it with a plum
1: absolute a plum i mean i have some feelings about the bad sex awards namely sex is often weird and the bad sex awards get weirdly prudish about weird sex and i, I hate the bad sex awards um, and
0: I think they often nominate people who absolutely don't deserve to be nominated. Um, not that there is a dessert. like Obviously, it's funny talking about like, oh, this old man is being weird about these young women. And it's kind of funny to parody that. But I think, yeah, they're, it's a bit prudish. I don't care for it. But this is far off topic. Let's get into the plot summary. Go wild. Go for your life. American Wife is the 2009 novel inspired by the life of Laura Bush, former first lady and wife of George Bush Jr., here we know her as Alice Blackwell. Beginning in the Midwest of the 1950s, we follow Alice from her quiet childhood to the car accident in her teens that killed her first crush and changed her life forever. After becoming a school librarian, she meets Charlie Blackwell at the barbecue of some mutual friends and begins a whirlwind romance that leads to a long marriage and eventually to the White House. Um, this, how I would describe my, I, I've seen this book in so many people's homes over the last sort of 10 years or so. And I would describe it as the smart lady's holiday book. You know what I mean? Like up there yeah. with like Zadie Smith um, or like Barbara Kingsolver, just like she's going on the holidays, but she's going to like Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> she's Croatia. not going to Magaluf.
1: No, like an exquisite little beach in Croatia. A- exquisite. Yeah. Oh, we went to Split. <laughs> Split was exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> People don't Look, just say Croatia, but places within Croatia, Croatia. If you're going to Split, you should take this book. Not because it has any relevance to Split, but just because it seems like the kind of book that women who go on uh, like solo holidays to Split often read. Totally. It is so that genre. of
0: like, It's like almost... I think uh, this is the first Curtis Sittenfeld I've ever read, but I think it, it took me a while to get into her because people are a little bit annoying about her.
1: People are a little bit annoying about her. And that is it, is an occupational hazard. Of being a very yeah. good but also very fun writer, and I, yeah. I think we've talked a bit before in previous podcasts about the concept of fun and a stretch. Um, yes, this is how me and Ella um, recommend books
0: to each other. We're only interested if the books are both fun, as in they're fun, and they're a stretch, as in they slightly push your mind to places that you didn't want to go or didn't think you wanted to go.
1: Exactly, because books can be fun, and you can just read them. I read a million romance novels a year. I read a million thrillers. All of them are fun. None of them do anything new with my mind. I love them. Sometimes I read books that are a stretch. Oh boy, are... do they stretch. Oh, they stretch. They stretch and they are hard. And you feel like you've been, not even for a run because there are endorphins with running, but you've just done some tedious task that, you know, is good for you. Eating vegetables that aren't very well cooked. Absolutely. And you know what? This
0: is... That is exactly the book I thought this was going to be, and so uh, did I. Uh, I'll level with you, I bought it because it was 99p on Kindle and we're in a pandemic. These
1: 99 P <laughs> Kindle deals. Tell you what? Boy, book you book do a, the job. <laughs> get your book on a 99p Kindle deal because I will buy it. <laughs> I hope someone's
0: marketing assistant just like goes in and be like, look, I told you it was a good idea because now it's on a podcast. Um, But yeah, so I bought it that and I, I, the first kind of section, and this book is divided into four sections, which very cleverly are named after the addresses Alice Blackwell lives in. And it's kind of very satisfying when you turn the page like 300 pages in, it's like, and we're in Pennsylvania Avenue and we all know where that is, you know. Um, But you begin in that first section and it's like, Ah, some serious musings from my serious childhood in the Midwest. And I'm all very quiet and serious. And I'm like, fine. And then she kills her friend who she's in love with. And I'm like, that's interesting, but fine. But then once Charlie Blackwell enters the scene, it becomes the most compulsive, convulsive, magnetic, have to read this, must ignore everyone
1: I live with book. I mean, for me, it felt like two books. Section one and section four. Is it section one and section four? Yeah, section one and section four, one book. Section two and three, another book. And I liked both of those books for different reasons, but I found section two and three, i.e. meeting Charlie and being married to Charlie, completely compulsive. I just find their marriage fascinating. Whereas I found section four much more meditative and much more effective. I just, I'm going to say it, I didn't like Alice very much. I didn't trust her. I felt like she was sneaky and didn't admit to any of her own... Even when she admits to her own failings, I felt like she was doing it to try and make me forgive her. Whereas Charlie, he's just so relentlessly like, fuck it, gonna do what I want. I'm very powerful. Yeah. Which is much more fun to read about than someone beating themselves up for their own choices, but also wanting you to kind of admire their choices. I think we have, when we talked about this briefly... Possibly different views of Alice. I think you like her more than I do. You trust her more than I do.
0: It's an interesting question. I yeah. I, what I don't trust about Alice is... I think you're right. I think there is a sort of sense by the end. This woman who is in her 60s at this point and is looking back at her life and trying to explain her worst decisions... Play up her best instincts, and she is. Se- it is by the end that she's selling herself to you. But I also think that is a natural instinct that people have once they're coming to sort of the winter of their lives to mm-hmm. sell themselves back into themselves, despite the mistakes, despite the character flaws, despite the ob- And in Alice's case, the obvious evidence that something has gone wrong here because there is a war in Iraq, <laughs> and no one knows why it's happening. <laughs> I mean. Like, it's a very human struggle, but just, like, it's on a fucking jumbo
1: screen. Yeah, it felt very real to me that she would try and explain her life to me in this way. But I didn't want to forgive her, and I didn't forgive her. I could see how she got where she got, but... And I felt that Alice... Alice felt extremely real to me. I felt that I was reading... You know, she's obviously not Laura Bush. She's obviously Alice Blackwell, a fictional character, etc., but I yeah. felt that it, I felt I was reading like papers that someone had hidden to be like now exonerate me. And I didn't want to exonerate her, but I did believe it completely. I did believe yes. that she felt this was the best way of getting her story across. Yes, I found it very difficult absolutely. to think of her and as a fictional character, you know.
0: And it's it's interesting because like it reads a little bit like she's in a room with a biographer, you know, or with her yeah with the memoirs or yeah. whatever and that she's trying to give it and she's you kind of almost imagine it being like over a series of days in a room in the White House her just giving her story but she says often she often makes these annotations to herself where she's like I would never tell anyone this and I'm never going to tell anyone this but blah 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 and it's like but you're and it's so interesting because it's that thing that people do which is like you think you're being honest with yourself but even to yourself it's a pre-package
1: totally i felt that's exactly it i felt that this was pre-packaged in a way that made me think alice you're lying you're lying to yourself about what you wanted even when she seems like she's being honest and i can't quite put my finger on what makes her feel slippery to me yeah But, but like i think that thing about thinking of her in a room in the white house giving her biography it's like she kind of warms up to the biographer in section two like by the end of section one she's like well i've told you i've told you that i killed andrew so I might as well tell mm. you about the mind-blowing sex I had with the president, and then <laughs> yeah, it feels like they're like a sherry. <laughs> yeah, and then section three, it's like, oh my god, here are all the things about my marriage that were difficult, and here is how we got here. And section four is much more like, well, goodness. Um, okay, uh, let's just try and time get to this. wrap up. Thank you time for coming in. Thank you for coming in. Uh, glad that you're here. Please don't write anything I said on the past two days into your yeah. book totally
0: and it's absolutely the book is stronger for it like the fact that she's prepackaging messages to herself makes it an even stronger book to me rather than somebody who's just laying it all out there cuz that's not how people yes, are yes
1: yes it doesn't feel conf- it it doesn't feel there's a structure to it that takes it away from a sort of pure confessional feeling mm and I, I loved that. I loved feeling like there were two books in this and I didn't expect to because I thought that I, I would either love the incredibly sexy bit in the middle or the thoughtful musings on life and death and what it is to be a human being in the world with responsibilities towards others of section one and four. But in fact, I felt that they were they were balanced. It made the whole... Yeah, it it hung together beautifully as a piece. It's so well constructed.
0: And I know This is the most highfalutin we've ever been on the podcast. I know. Podcast. I was just I'm very proud that. of
1: us. <laughs> I think it's because it is perhaps more literary than mm-hmm. other things that certainly that you and I have talked about on this podcast.
0: Yeah. If you look at something certainly.
1: like Valley of the Dolls, which I just re I just listened to our recording of it, So it's very fresh <laughs> in my mind. I have to listen to it's it an hour sure of us squealing. I have to listen to it to make sure I haven't said anything terrible. I oh yeah, all right. Um, But Valley of the Dolls, the thing we keep going back to is, this book has no structure. This book has no structure. It just all happens, which is how I feel about Brother of the More Famous Jack as well. It just all happens, Mm -hmm. because that's like life. This book doesn't all happen. I feel that a cautious, clever, clever woman is trying to argue a case to me, and I kind of... I'm sorry, we're going to st- keep into highfaluting at least until we get to the part where George Bush goes down on her. But... <laughs> For like three pages. <laughs> three pages, guys. It's it's a lot. I can't talk about it yet. Please stop listening. Please, family, just let me talk about this in peace. Um, so there's this part in... the There's this thing she says in part one, which is, when you're a high school girl, there is nothing more miraculous than a high school boy. And truly I felt that you could carry that through the whole book. So when you're a twenty when you're a twenty-six-year-old woman, there's nothing more miraculous than a 32-year-old man, or however old they are when they meet. But yeah. it's just this it's a very straight book about being attracted very much to men as a woman. And it felt to me kind of like it wanted to be a celebration of straight female desire, but actually came across as almost an apology, like, I know, I know. I know oh, he's like that's that, so good. but yeah. I I want it. And yes, I know he does terrible. And I think there is something in that. And I don't you know, want to make huge generalisations, but there's something about being a woman in the patriarchy, being attracted to men, particularly powerful men, who are powerful within the structures of that patriarchy, that make you want to do these apologies. And this is where I wanted to bring in the other bilingual, right? Because that's what we talked about then, is mm. what it's like to be a woman under patriarchy, living in a world where you are at a disadvantage and still being kind of like, yeah, but I'm into it. This is hot, isn't it? Yes. Isn't it? And yeah, I felt like it was kind of an apology for straight female desire while also being kind of smug about it, which is, for me, an intrinsic part of being attracted to men is this thing of, ugh, Oh my like God, you so you much. S- this is ridiculous. So Get over yourself. Why do you? No.
0: And it's that thing of like, because, and what I really like is that we spend so much time in the book with Alice before Charlie ever shows up, not just when she's a teenager and she's, I think we've skipped over Andrew and we will get back to him because um, Andrew is the boy that she kills with her car, but... Um, but we see we get a lot of her as like an adult woman in a very like lovely single adult woman, knows herself, likes her friends, loves her job, likes doing craft projects, like it's a very lovely little existence and it's a it's very neat and orderly and whatever. Oh and God, by the time that Charlie projects. comes into it, her craft projects, she loves paper mache, which is how you know it's the seventies um, and uh, then, like when Charlie barges into it. It's the, the the romance is so whirlwind but also he is just so red blooded and he's so kind of um vulgar and it's all just so sexy, so impetuous, he sort of drives through a tornado storm to be with her and it's also red blooded, you know?
1: It is, but also he likes her. You know, he when he's so she's a librarian. She's spending the summer going to parties. A kind of barbecues and being a bit like, "Ugh, oh, you people are drinking too much. I'm just so clean and exquisite. There's a bit where she's reading to a child at a party. At a party. Yeah. Come on, Alice, oh, have a yeah. drink. Um, have a drink and lighten up. But he sees her reading to the child and is obviously like... I mean, I think he thinks this woman will play very well with the American public. Yeah. But he takes her... He They go home together... And she's like, don't go into my bedroom, don't go into my bedroom. And obviously he goes into her bedroom and sees all these papier-mâché figures. And he's just like, they're so beautiful. And she's like, we will now have sex.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to
1: BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: So what I really like about this is that they both meet as as Laura Bush and George Bush met at the ages of 31 and you really get the sense that Laura like really knows herself and it's almost because of because the fact that she's 31 and not 21 they don't play too much in this what would have been quite a boring story which would have been um oh he's super wealthy she's kind of middle class he's from this dynasty she's not really from anything remarkable god isn't it a whirlwind god isn't she lucky and then she realizes she's not so lucky after all like from very early on in their romance she's like yes I'm lucky to have met this lovely handsome man who's also wealthy who wants to take care of me and marry me but also he's extremely lucky to have met me because everything about me lends a credibility to him that he is not able to get in his own and she's smart enough to see that from the beginning.
1: And I think it means that she has to own her choices I don't know, I, just for clarification I know nothing about Laura Bush and very little about George Bush apart from, you know, war crimes bad and things. Katrina and stuff. Um, and even then, very shaky grasp. But her being 31 from a kind of textual perspective, she has to own what she does. This is not a child of I So I thought Andrew was going to be the... So Andrew is the boy she kills with a car. She basically is in love with him from when she's six and he's nine or something like that. I found her feelings about Andrew to be extremely stressful and duplicitous. Yes. I found that more. So she tries to basically set up through her life an opposition of if I'd married Andrew, everything would have been perfect forever. I married Charlie and I had to make compromises because that's what people do when someone they love dies. This is not Mm. the case. She's never kissed Andrew. She meets him in a grocery store yeah. with their grandma, with her grandma when she's six. Then he's kind of around a bit in her teens. But he's like a boy she kind of knows. And then he's going out with her best friend for four years. And then they have one, like, moment where basically all he says is, uh, are you going to the party on Saturday? And she says, <laughs> yeah. And she has built this up and she wraps it around in this beautiful language of, you know, there's nothing more miraculous than a high school boy about... And I knew that I was in love with him and that he was in love with me and that we would Absolutely. have a perfect time at oh, this party. Oh, so duplicitous, yeah. And she comes back to this all through her life. Even right at the end of the book, she's still thinking, if I were kissing Andrew, this would be different. Everything would be exquisite and blissful. And you just think, oh man, like think of people you had a crush on at 14. Think of your strong, pure convictions that the famous person you had a crush on at 14 would love you back and it would be the purest love of all time. And she's based her whole life on it went wrong because he died. But also, he didn't just die. She killed him with her car. Yeah. And she tries to make this beautiful, and it is not beautiful. And I think the book does compensate for that by she has some extremely violent sex with his brother. Yes. Which, I mean, I don't even know what to say about Pete Imhoff. It's (laughs) so viscerally... Having sex as a teenager with someone older who has kind of got a better idea of what they're doing but not enough to know what they're doing. Oh god, preach. <laughs> it's awful. It's like, so, like I will do- let you take the lead because I know nothing, but also you know very little and are trying to pretend it's everything. Oh
0: god. I have so much to say in this. First of all, I would just I would love to speak to somebody who read this book and who took Alice's obsession with and conviction that she was supposed to have ended up with Andrew Imhoff, um, if she hadn't killed him, uh, as sincere and the truth, right? Because she is she's like completely packs this poor boy with her entire destiny and every single conversation she's ever had with him, down to when they were like very small children. She packs with meaning in a way that I find very believable if like at the most like developmentally heightened moment of your life, i.e. when you're a 17 year old girl, you run a stop sign and kill one of your peers. Like I completely believe that she has just like gone back to that well over and over again. Totally,
1: totally. This is kind of what I meant about I don't like her and I don't trust her, but I believe everything she says. I believe, I believe it.
0: Her reality is completely being rendered to me exquisitely, right? That's it. Exactly. Whether or not
1: the facts of it are real, that's 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 a very neat way of putting it. Yeah, that's yeah, what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> you are welcome. Um. Yeah, but that's that's Andrew. <laughs> that yeah, and I find this conflation of the beautiful, pure life she might have led with the compromised life she did lead to be one that I think is fairly universal, right? Like, we're always... Everybody has to hold up in their mind the choices they could have made and things they could have done differently and done better. And I yeah. think she lingers on it to a degree that is deeply unhealthy. And... That oh, is totally. is well... Completely...
0: Yes, and it's wrapped up in a person who who truly believes themselves to be the only sane person in the asylum, which I find very tedious. Like she, so she, you know, falls in with the Blackwell family, and they are like, oh, uh, they are the most exquisitely annoying, like rendition of big family people. Do you know what I mean? I'm from a big family. You're from what? Well, you know, a big family, and like. There are some people who are, and I know I can be this person and I know you can be this person. It's just like, are extremely annoying about their big family being like oh we're just you know we're so messy and we're so in each other's faces and we don't care and we're like our own country and like we have our own rules and if you don't get down with those rules you can basically fuck off always the famous be more jet. Us. it's the goldman exactly there'll always be more of us and there will be of you. so you might as well just like fall in line and like i've seen my own family do this i know your family does it too hi family
1: <laughs> great we're really, really just hitting all the buttons here but yeah big family people <laughs> And they're big family people in this sense of like a sprawling dynasty. And Yes. Do you know what I think is so great? What a weird way to open it with a quote, Ella. Do you know <laughs> what, what I think is so great? The bit I think is so great is when she first so Charlie takes her to Halcyon. Halcyon is the summer retreat. You think it's a house. It's not a house. It's like a bunch a of neighborhood. Cottages, a neighborhood that belongs to them and four other families. Four, five other families? you get this barrage of names immediately you get this barrage of names i kind of wanted just to read like a couple of bits from this just so you get that flavor of uh sure this halcyon was a row of houses along a 700 acre eastern stretch of the peninsula that was door county and in order to own one of the houses you had to pick it you had to belong to the halcyon club Apparently, he became a member by being born into one of five families, the Needleffs, the Higginsons, the DeWolfs, the Thayers, and the Blackwells. Charlie's first kiss, he explained, cheerfully, had been with Christy Needleff when he was 12 and she was 14. Sarah Thayer, the matriarch of the Thayer family, was the sister of Hugh DeWolf, the patriarch of the DeWolfs. Hugh DeWolf and Harold Blackwell, Charlie's father, had been roommates at Princeton. Uh, Emily Higginson was the godmother of Charlie's brother, Ed, and those were all about the intramural details I managed to retrain retain though there were many many more and charlie shared them with increasing zest the closer we got to our destination so there's yeah all of that to start with and then as soon as they get there everybody starts having these conversations like for instance as we reached the screen door at the back of the house charlie asked who's around Let's see. Ed and John are out fishing with Joe. Ginger has a migraine. Arthur raised his eyebrows dubiously. Dad and Madge are swimming with the boys and Lisa. JD and the baby drove to town to get bug spray. Careful, because the mosquitoes are a bitch right now. Uncle Tripp is sleeping and Nan's playing tennis with Margaret. Am I leaving anyone out? Uncle Tripp's here, Charlie said. And then, Uh, two pages later, she gets to... Haltingly, but accurately, Ed was the oldest brother, the congressman. Ginger was his wife, prone to migraines or to faking them, depending on whom you believed. Either way, there was a consensus among all the Blackwells besides Ed that Ginger was joyless and rigid. The boys were their sons, Harry aged 10, Tommy aged 8 and Jeff, aged 4. Also falling under the heading of the boys was Arthur's son, Drew, aged 3. JD was Arthur's wife and the baby was their 11-month-old daughter, Winnie. John was the second oldest brother, the husband of Nan. Lisa, aged 9, was John and Nan's older daughter... And Margaret, age seven, was their younger daughter. Oh my god. Uncle Triple's like panic, uncle- panic attack <laughs> was the third roommate in the Triple Shed by Harold Blackwell and Huda Wolf at Princeton University in the fall of nineteen thirty nine and the spring of nineteen forty. And finally, Dad was Harold Blackwell and Mad was Priscilla Blackwell. And then there's another paragraph. <laughs>
0: wow. And the thing is, even as a reader you're like, oh my god, fuck, is this about to become like a like a Jilly Cooper novel
1: where we really will them. have to learn you all these people. do. Whenever any of no. these people come up again in the text, and some of them do and most of them don't, they come up with caveats. My brother-in-law, Arthur. My brother-in-law's son, who was now 22, his name was Henry, here is where we met him before. Curtis of Sittenfeld is very clean about this. She doesn't expect you to remember this, but she lists you all of these names, so you get that sense of, I am an only child. I'm yeah, I'm only the only child of, like quiet Lutheran parents and you people are insane which is how I imagine basically how anyone any of my siblings brings home feels for about the first 48 hours I've just been like who are you people why are you all related and why are yeah. you all shouting who does I this think child that thing of like,
0: it's that thing of um, they're so they're so proud of themselves in that way that you get with big families right that like They're kind of, they are like, oh, you know, you know us, we're messy all over the place, whose baby is this or whatever. But like, there is a a really obvious strike of kind of self-satisfaction that goes through most of it that I think is picked up here in a way that I have never seen anywhere else before and makes me
1: feel so exhausted on her behalf. It made me feel very tired on her behalf, despite coming from the kind of family I mean, no one comes from this kind of family. No, no, <laughs> you know? not this kind of family, but a kind of family with lots of moving parts. Yeah, yeah. And um. and I, I was interested to think about this in the kind of context of the brother of the more famous Jack when you're one of the family. You know, Catherine in brother of the more famous Jack falls into the Goldman family, which is big and sprawling, has many moving parts. And although she's never exactly of it, she's at home in it fairly quickly. Yeah. Whereas, truly, I don't feel like Alice is ever at home with the Blackwells. She won't. She doesn't subsume herself in the way you have to. Yeah,
0: but the thing is, she's she's as accepted as you're ever gonna be. Do you know what I mean? She's as accepted as JD is, who's been there her whole life. JD is her sister in law. JD
1: JD is her sister in law, who is just exquisite. She's just a person who's having. Who's like, I made my choices, they're great. Don't, don't ruin this by getting weird. Don't make this weird for me. I'm having a good day. Totally.
0: She is completely that, that rich person that makes being rich look fabulous. Do you know what I mean? And there are plenty of rich people who make it look boring. Alice makes
1: it look very tedious. It's very yeah, stressful. Exactly. I'm stressed by the idea of being rich like Alice. Uh, being rich like JD seems fantastic. And like, it's not that she has a perfect life. Her husband is quite rude to her when she gains weight because she's a trophy wife. She's mm-hmm. so young. She's younger than Alice and she's got two kids yes. already. Yes, and she, she's on a third
0: kid or second? Yeah, second, yeah, yeah. She's, on
1: a, she's just had a second and she's 27. Mm. Which feels very young to me, but then it would. Um, yeah. But there is this sense of, and this is kind of something I wanted to think about also, with the Philip Gregory comparison, of someone has just stumbled into an enormous dynasty of people, all of whom have their own power dynamics and struggles, and you don't quite know where the power lies, because yes. you think it's with the parents, and it kind of is with the parents, and then you're like, oh, no, but it's with Charlie, who is so at home here. And then later on in the novel, you find out that the brothers actually think Charlie's kind of a tip, Like, they're really not that yes. into Charlie. And... It puts this whole new spin on this on this weird weird weekend in their holiday house which is shabby and ugly in the way that only very rich people's things can be shabby and ugly oh it's so
0: it's so well drawn and like I think this is a real passion of Curtis Sittenfeld because her first book eligible was very much about like the prep or no no, no. Prep was her first book, and that was very much about the prep school system. So her observations on rich people are sharp as a fucking flint. And um, she says this thing about Halcyon, about how it's so dilapidated and they're so in love with it, and like there's only one toilet, and the plumbing is terrible, and all this. And she says, um, uh, the, de- the deprivations of Halcyon tickle them. They love them as suburban children love sleeping in a tent in their own backyard. Like... It's, so it's very practiced and conscious, like, we love roughing it, there's only one bathroom and there's mildewed sheets and all this kind of stuff, but it's like, yeah, this is a month out of your year, this is not how you would tolerate living year round. This is a
1: fun adventure for you, and yeah. nothing here can harm you, whereas she, quite reasonably, is like, oh, it would be better if there was more than one bathroom and you could definitely always flush okay so I need to talk about the bathroom scene it's my it's one of my favorite parts I mean as a sort of not a prude but you know I like not to talk about things that are deeply unpleasant
0: I am far more scatological than you I've accepted this (laughs) you are but also
1: this violent scene this violent let's call it what it is a violent shitting scene (laughs) is truly staggering Uh, and again like with the sex it's not gratuitous no, it's absolutely necessary.
0: Um, so what happens is, is that she has her first like big dinner party at Halcyon. Um, she gets absolutely plastered for the first time in her life because it's one of those constantly topped up wine glass situations.
1: I felt very um, bad for her that she had to feel bad about that. I felt that it was clear that her wine glass was being constantly topped up and that it would be very difficult to stay sober in that situation. I just want totally, that on the on I- record.
0: Oh, completely. And and to be fair, I don't think anyone, nobody wants to make her feel bad about it. Everyone's kind of quietly amused, and they're glad that she's good fun and that she's having a laugh and she's drinking or whatever. She's just such a prude that she's like, I can't believe I was drunk in front of my boyfriend's family for the first time I've met them. Yeah. And um, so and and they have all these mad sleeping arrangements there's all these cottages scattered all over Halsey, and, and she's staying in this cottage by herself. She wakes up at four o'clock in the morning, and she desperately needs a shit because of all this rich food and all this rich drink and whatever and she has to like walk like, climb across the lawn in like a jumper with no like bare legs the dew of the early morning kind of break into the house go for like fucking explosive hungover diarrhea. We've all been there. There's no, there's no point denying it. And like, it's so, and she has to like, the, the door doesn't close properly. And she has to stack books against the door. And she's that moment like where she times. decides
1: where she's like, perhaps the books are here for that purpose. Yes. It's so because who else? Cause who would read in that house? It's so specifically weird. The thing of like, the door doesn't close. There's a stack of books. Surely no one's reading these books. Have they set up their whole lives so that you have to put books in front of the door so that you can... Yeah. It's so grim and also delicate. I don't know, it's a very odd thing to say about a, violent, a scene about violent diarrhoea. But much like the sex scenes, you don't get the sense ever that these things are being told to you for no reason everything is moving the plot along. All her feelings while she's in this, I can just feel it, you know, the tiles are so cracked and the toilet seat is cracked and it's oh, all... So, like, the, that green... It, like, I don't know if it's even described as this, but it's that greenish colour, right? Like, it's all a bit... Oh, uh, The the
0: detail that absolutely did me in on this was uh, um this is beautiful moment where she's washing her hands out and she's had to do the thing where, like, it's stuck to the bowl, she's had to get tissue, she's had to, like, clean the bowl with the tissue because there's no scrubber or whatever in there it's really fucking horrible and she hates it and she thinks she's woken up the whole house and she goes to the sink to wash her hands she picks up the little piece of soap that's so worn away she describes it as having the thickness of a guitar pick and then she starts rubbing her hands with it and it snaps in half and she just says out loud to herself i hate it here
1: That soap i can feel it you know it's like ridgy and dry
0: oh, it's so bad. The worst Ridgy soap in the world. and dry,
1: and there's just just let wash our hands. Like you've got so much money, Blackwells.
0: Yeah, and you're just you, and it's a it's this power thing of like forcing people to go through discomfort because it doesn't make you uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And and also it's this brilliant thing with Alice's whole character, and it's a similar thing with sex. It's like she's someone whose instincts are so firmly in control for the whole book, and she's so like, and there's many kind of like little nuggets that feel like you know a 60s edition of good housekeeping like a sort of an agony aunt being like you know um sometimes you want to snap at your husband but just keep it to yourself and find a diplomatic way to bring it up later when he's had his burgers you know and like Mm -hmm. it's very like keeping it controlled very prudish very like keeping it you know very protestant and the fact that she has to surrender to this physical thing of like shitting herself senseless at her boyfriend's parents house is like a really... In, like The fact that she has to surrender to this very base thing when she has to be around the very base people and her whole life has been very prim up to this is such brilliant, not just character development, but character destruction, you know?
1: Yes, and I think that's also the part of the thing about the sex, isn't it? Is she has to... Because when she's having sex with Pete Imhoff, brother of Andrew... After he, she's yeah. killed him. Brother, of the more famous Andrew. Brother, of the more famous Andrew. After she's killed him, <laughs> um, that's very visceral and vivid and unpleasant, and
0: but also yeah. importantly, she orgasms instantly with yeah. in this in very debasing, very, like sex that is a horrible sort of thing to subject to a very young, traumatized girl but she describes climaxing almost instantly. It's like, again, it's this baseness that she's responding to despite herself. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's the way all
1: through the the novel. And that's certainly... But then Charlie's very nice to her. Yeah. Charlie's very nice to her.
0: (laughs) He really is. He really loves... And that's the thing. At the end of all this, despite her, like... Um, renaissance about his family she really loves him and he really loves her which is something we haven't said yet in 45 minutes of
1: podcasting <laughs> that's too much podcasting but yeah and I, this is a book about love because it's a book about a marriage and it's not a book about an unhappy marriage no it's it's a complicated marriage there's a point where she leaves him because he's always drunk and then he's like please come back and she thinks about it and goes back and There's always this tension between them that she fundamentally thinks that he's doing bad things. Not enough to ever stop him or not marry him. But, yeah, there is a great deal of tenderness between them. And, you know, right at the end, there's a part, like, just on the last page, she says something like, oh, my dear husband. And this is the man who has done the Iraq war, not done it. Like, you know, this is the man essentially, we are told in the novel, responsible for the Iraq War, for the deaths of so many. We've seen over previous pages the father of a lost soldier who just desperately wants to. desperately wants accountability for his lost son and all the other soldiers killed. And she just loves him. She loves him in such a total way, and she kind of surrenders to him in these. you know as soon as they go to bed together that she's going to suspend her judgment for him. Or maybe, you know, she keeps her judgment inside, but it no longer has any consequence. From the moment that long sex scene money goes down on her, I'm just going to say it, that's when she decides that her principles are no longer worth anything compared to somebody who loves her this much. Yeah.
0: And it's also like... (sighs)
1: do you know what the sex is good and he makes her laugh you know the sex is good and he makes her laugh and she <sighs> everyone else and in her she life she deserves that you know she kind of does but everyone else in her life is so prim her boyfriend before charlie is i forget his oh, name oh the worst what's his name i can't even remember his name it's
0: just a... <laughs> the... he's just oh, charlie Lord. calls him parsley
1: sage Parsley Sage! Because <laughs> he's just this, like, annoying hippie. <laughs> An annoying hippie who likes to sing Simon and Garfunkel. And they have bad sex. And eventually they break up because he's like, yeah, I just... I don't believe in marriage or ch- kids. And then obviously she meets him, like, ten years later. And he's like, this is my son Kyle. My wife's over there. And she's like, oh. Oh. And she tries to say to Charlie, like, you will not believe who I just met. And he's like, ah! Oh, Parsley Sage! Ah, what a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're so...
0: They have a real, genuine ease with each other and it's completely outside of jealousy or resentment. They're just really, like, really pleased for... And he's like, yeah, he's very into the fact that she's had a lot of sex, not a lot of sex, but
1: she's had some sex, you know, before meeting him. He doesn't expect her to be a... It's not a book of sort of a shy princess comes to... That's what differentiates this from the Philippa Gregory, right? Is that... It's not like, oh, my king, I come to you. It's like, I have seen some things. I've had a life. You've had a life. She comes into this marriage with her eyes open. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's crucial in in why I don't like her and why I think that her account feels fabricated to me. Because she comes into this marriage having killed someone.
0: Accidentally.
1: Accident. Like, I, I I don't blame her for
0: that death, do you? Yeah. I mean, I blame her in the sense that she was responsible, but I don't think it was a nefarious act. Oh, no, you I, know? I don't
1: think she did it on purpose. But oh, no. she's very, she talks a lot about this kind of, in this w- very wistful way about the life she could have had. Um yeah. And there's, I don't, I don't know, I don't really want to skip ahead, too much because i know we've got to go through the whole of section three and section four to go and we we don't have a ton of time because we're already but there's this passage just before the end where she says something like she looks at charlie who she's been married to at this point for 30 years she is the wife of the president she has just through a series of very complicated things oh we haven't even talked about her abortion we should talk about that um Uh, she has compromised herself, she has compromised Charlie as well, she has compromised his government, the thing that matters to him most, she has compromised their marriage, and she has compromised for all those things as well. And she looks at her husband, this is just after the my dear husband thing, and she says something like, I knew I had never had the dewy certainty I felt for Andrew, the lightness of our lives then. I it's like, man, you were 17 Yeah. You were 17. Of course you've never had the dewy certainty you felt at 17. No one does, because you get older and you're like, hey, well, the dewy certainty I felt at 17 turned into me having, I don't know, the top of my head, horrible sex, horrible sex in someone else's bathroom. And uh, then you never called me, and then you were mean to me at school. (laughs) Not that that ever happened. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? The dewy certainty... the dewy certainty you feel when you were 17, inevitably... And yeah, I think nobody,
0: regardless of whether or not they've killed someone with their car, like, or nobody married, gets to feel that pre- again or forever.
1: No, even people who marry their first loves have to, at some point, be like, yeah. okay, well, this is now a real life and not just the dewy certainty of 17. <laughs> the ah, the dewy certainty. And I think that... I think perhaps this is part of why this book feels... Like a book I want everyone to read is because everyone knows that tension between my life as it is now and the lightness of my life when I was a teenager and when I was a child and before I knew what things could be. How things yeah. could go wrong. What, and the compromises the thing, yeah. being an adult. Being an adult's all compromise all the time. The thing is watch because the thing is, she doesn't
0: actually know Andrew well enough to miss him or miss any specific quality about him, what Alice Blackwell actually misses is ideological certainty. Like, she misses getting out of bed every morning and, like, knowing that she had to do her homework and be nice to her grandmother and nothing else, you know?
1: Which is, you know, growing up. But there's, and like, this is interesting to me because I think Charlie sees this in her. Because Charlie says to her, you have to forgive yourself for killing that boy.
0: Oh, it's such a good scene. It's like it's like um, literally the night after their wedding, and they're in some B and B somewhere. And she she calls it the only paranormal moment of my marriage, where he's kind of asleep and she's just up awake. And he just turns to her and says, "You." Ha-, and she's thinking about Andrew. It's and just you have to forgive yourself for that boy. And it's it's a really tender, like heartbreaking moment. It's that moment of like, and I think of that thing of like how. How very often, like partners of people know that they're sick before they do. It's that thing when you've, when you've come to know someone so well and they haven't even noticed that you know them that well, that you can connect to that very, very inner and hidden part of themselves without even considering it, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah, it's a marriage. And that's the point. Yeah. And that was the point where it, it's interesting. I think that's the first time she uses the word my marriage. That is the point where you know that this is a marriage and they are in it. In it for the long haul. The, because Charlie's never going to get divorced. Because the president can't. Someone, no. People who want to be presidents. And also she thought because... about that and she decided against it. Yes. Also, okay, we have
0: to talk about the separation and also we have to talk about her relationship with Madge from the beginning to the separation. Because Madge sort of like drops out after that. Um, Like... From the beginning, I I know you at the moment are are um, watching Sex in the City, and I am. you are at that you're at that point I think in season three or four, four. where like the four where the Charlotte Trey Bunny McDougal triangle.
1: Oh is my happening. god! It, just they this book, and yeah, Trey McDougal and Bunny and Charlotte is a perfect combination because you just end up being like this is it this is what they do these incredible sprawling rich American clans these waspy uh it's it's this so must perfect. be kennedy adjacent Magis bunny mcdougall madge's bunny McDougal. i mean i it's just perfect it was a perfect pairing and i texted you in all caps caps for some time because <laughs> it's like a great wine cheese pairing <laughs> it truly was because i you know put down my book watched a bit of Sex and city and just deeply deeply absorbed in the ways rich people can be careless with each other the ways rich people can have their traditions that push out outsiders and are meant to put pressure on outsiders, the way you will fit into the mould or you will sort of drown. Like, there's
0: a... It's a combination of sort of, like, ruggedness and primness that's very unique to posh rich people. Um, where it's like one minute they could be like oh for god's sake just you know scrub yourself down with lye soap and you're fine and they hose you down outside next to the horses and then there's another bit of like oh very delicate lovely luncheon and you don't know what you're gonna get ever unless you totally understand their world.
1: It's a series of rhythms that I mean to me it's very alien I assume to you as well but Mm. I'm kind of obsessed. You assume to me as as if we don't know each other. I don't know, you may have had a secret, what if you'd had a fling with a secret rich person and, I don't know. That's true. (laughs) Somehow neglected to mention, but yes, go on. Somewhere in your youth or wicked childhood, no one knows. (laughs) Um, There's this interesting balance between, like, crudeness and delicacy. And it really brought to mind for me... The Great Gatsby. I kept thinking about The Great Gatsby mm, reading this book. Yeah. Which has that same... It's this waspy, waspy rich people. Waspy rich people yeah. who seem very careless, but aren't, actually. They do things with care, and when when they do careless things, it's because they don't matter in their, scheme, in their grand scheme of things. It's almost... It's like a very alien way of looking at the world. Yes. It's like trying to understand, as Nick... Kind of does in *The Great Gatsby*, and Alice does here. They seem like they're people trying to understand like an alien set of social codes. Totally. Because, for instance, the way Alice meets Charlie's brother, the first member of the family she met, is that he walks deliberately into the path of their car, and Charlie speeds up, and it's a game of chicken. I mean, Charlie's yeah. driving through the book is terrifying, given that Alice has killed someone with her car. Charlie's driving is terrifying. But he almost runs over his brother, yeah. right? And his brother's just like, ah, oh, you chicken, I knew you wouldn't do it. And yeah. she thinks, this is horrifying. This is horrifying and careless. But to both the brothers, it's a very carefully calibrated game to show their like respective manliness. Yeah, yeah. And in the same way that... But then then can, you can you
0: pair that off with this kind of... this, And people are like making up these like really crude limericks about Alice and like trying to tease her and trying to tease each other and competing with each other and it's all very brash but then you'll get these little moments being like okay but no you can't tell anyone that we're
1: engaged before we tell Madge because there's a kind of a hierarchy here that we must obey yes and that's what I mean about it seems lawless from the outside but from the inside it's all very carefully done there's a line but you as an outsider never know what the line is And it's why it's why in like the Great Gatsby, like Nick is never going to be successful. He's never going to be the rich person he longs to be because everyone knows he's a fraud, and like everyone knows he's just not. He just doesn't know what the line is. And it's these codes. And also in the
0: Great Gatsby, where it's like Gatsby himself thinks that if he amasses enough money, he can get into the society. But actually, it was never about the money. It was about knowing this extremely complicated very long list of manners.
1: And I think when that's most evident to jump into section 3 is when Miss Ruby is the family's yes. maid housekeeper. She is a black woman in a sea of white people. They treat her Charlie for instance was like oh Miss Ruby there you are like oh I love you like your family and she's like it's very the kind of yes. mammy stereotype yeah. Yeah and she's just like yeah. Yeah yep we're family and she, he's just like yeah yeah, yeah you, they, love they... Me, you love me and like she's like yes yes Charlie Um, is there anything else you need and he's like yeah just get a drink just bring me this and you're like okay they, this relationship persists like Miss Ruby is maybe the only black person in the novel no the, I her, mean her, 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 her family, whole family her whole family involved, yeah, yeah her, her, but Miss Ruby and her family and, and um,
0: Alice also has a couple of friends from her primary school that are black also
1: but it's a very Which white, is very, waspy, like,
0: it's a very waspy novel. It's very white. Yeah. Because it's about But it's also how Alice per, per, like positions herself as being like, and she never quite says it, but it's very like, I'm friends with black people. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit like, I'm, I'm different to the Blackwells because I have friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, completely.
1: I see things for what they are. But then, Charlie is late home one night, so Alice asks Miss Ruby if she wants to come to the theatre with her. And it is an excruciating scene because Ms. Ruby says yes. And Alice is kind of not expecting her to say yes. And Alice basically spends the whole time at the theatre watching Ms. Ruby watch the play. And she doesn't say, how good am I for giving this cultural enrichment? But that's kind of, yeah. the vibe is very much, and then everybody's mad at her. Ms. Ruby's like, great, I'm going to go home now. And Maj, who's maid she is, is like, you must not, do not invite my staff out with you socially you have crossed a line and Alice is kind of like I didn't know I was crossing a line she knew that she was causing trouble and like they're so racist Madge is so racist but Charlie is the most racist there's this bit later on where uh Alice says it pleased Charlie to pretend that his mother was the biggest racist in the family yes whereas yes like there's a Charlie's always on about black welfare mothers
0: yeah yeah Oh, it's absolutely and it's like it's I think it's very much tracks with that's where it feels like but it was both helpful in a literary sense, but also Curtis Sittenfeld addressing George Bush is a racist president who did racist things. Like it's not like it's not something that's up for debate, like the writing's on the wall. It felt like her colliding. Here's Charlie Blackwell who we all like and he makes funny jokes and he loves our heroine and he goes down on there for three pages and also here's the racist
1: president you remember from the news colliding together really elegantly. Totally. Totally. Um, And I think it's interesting that later on Alice basically persuades Charlie that they should pay for Miss Ruby's granddaughter to go to private school. Yeah. Because the state schools are so bad. And she yeah. thinks that this girl is really bright. And it's such... And she is. And she is. And it's such a pathetic moment because you think, that's what you're going to do, is it? You're going to... you You it decide is, yeah. that this school is not good enough for this kid you happen to know. That was the moment where I but found most angry. But it is good enough for... Yeah. Like, like, you'll do this for Jessica, who will be loyal. And, like, later on you find out that Jessica has basically repaid her with total loyalty forever and is... By the end of the book. Really Alice's only friend. Yeah. This, yeah. this woman she has bought. I mean, I feel like that's... I, I felt very strongly that the idea of paying for one child to attend school while as president you are running down the school, the majority black schools. Yeah. It felt yeah. to me like a real moment of... Look what Charlie is doing. Look what Charlie is doing as president to this country. Look what Charlie has done to millions of kids like this. And I, it felt to me like a really neat picture of, this is how Alice thinks she gets away with this. Exactly. Yeah, she does. There
0: are interesting ways throughout the novel where um, Alice tries to exonerate herself. And some of them are convincing and some of them are not. Um, for example, there's a bit where she says, like, she's like, look, if I had stayed as a, you know, librarian, eventually I probably would have fostered some kids, and maybe I would have been active in my community, but as First Lady, I have, I have, like, overseen, like, and promoted, like, hundreds of organizations that will have huge, huge cash benefits, like, I, I do all this stuff, or whatever, with all of my time, that is genuinely does change Thousands of people's lives and helps very worthy causes. She's like, surely that's better. And then, and you're kind of like, yeah, I guess it is. But it's also like, but you've also stood idly by while your husband degraded national institutions, and also like aided and abetted in rolling back abortion access and stuff.
1: And Um, among among other things, yeah. And she sort of, it's funny because I I think part of the plot of the, the plot of the novel ought to be. She has an. She has, you know, Chekhov's abortion on page ninety or whatever. <laughs> Chekhov's abortion. Yes, um, and
0: Andrew's brother, who she gets pregnant with, she has an abortion. The abortion is carried out by her uh,
1: grandmother's lover, who we actually haven't even spoken about yet. But this is this is interesting to me. In the the plot of the novel is Chekhov's abortion performed by her grandmother's lesbian lover, and she kind of waits for it to come back and hit her all the way to the end, and then in the very last bit nearly she has to do something about it but then she doesn't the plot of this novel is essentially irrelevant to this novel I reading it I was just interested in the back and forth of the marriage I knew that the abortion was going to come back and be important because you don't again Chekhov you don't (laughs) plan an abortion on the wife of the republican wife of the president in her teens without in her 60s someone being like I'll expose you unless you get a pro-abortion candidate on the Supreme Justice. But then also I felt like that that did show you how powerless she was. It was like, what do you want her to do? Like,
0: Yeah, like, you do really live in that powerlessness, but I also there is that sense of, like, I mean, she's following... The thing about Laura Bush, historically, is that she was sandwiched between Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. Like two of the most magnetic and dynamic uh, whatever you think about Hillary and like nobody hates Michelle because she's she's great <laughs> um, but like two extremely dynamic first ladies who really made strides forward in that role in terms of if you think of like um like the whole thing with Hillary Clinton uh, like moving her office into the west wing the whole thing with like Michelle Obama being this like entity by herself now long after the presidency like there is space within the role of first lady to push and pull at that dynamic and that role like the role that alice blackwell wrote for herself she began writing in 1977 when charlie blackwell went down on her do you know what I mean like, that she could have created a role for herself where she like did more but instead she spent her entire life kind of meekly agreeing with her husband, writing small donation checks to worthy causes. And the small and, like, donations that mum. then
1: come out in the presidential campaign to be like, see, he's nice, really. And like, He's always been supporting literacy charities and such. And there's this part in the end where she says, I have often felt observing the world like a solitary person in a small cottage looking out a window at a vast dark forest. It's like you and everyone else, Alice. like what do you think the rest of what are the rest of us the trees and she's like oh Charlie and Ella don't see this that's her husband and her daughter it's like yeah they do that's what it is to be human is to be sometimes looking out of the window at a vast dark forest it's not that people don't see it's just that people deal with it differently and Alice's refusal to like it's not like she's gonna go and chop down the trees it's not gonna she's gonna do anything totally totally and like. Her big secret betrayal on the last pages. I mean, I know we've skipped, there's lots of plot points we've skipped, but I think, as I say, the important thing about this book for me is this portrait and this sense of being inside someone else's intense, weird, sexy, terrible marriage. It's not a terrible mm. marriage. It's it's quite a good marriage. but it's a, it's a very functioning marriage. It's a very functioning marriage where at some points they have arguments and at some points they have sex. But... Her big betrayal is that she didn't vote for her husband. Silently, while she went in, letting everyone think she voted Republican, but she didn't. And this, in her heart, she's like, I have done the right thing. And it's like, Alice. 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 Doesn't count. Doesn't count. Doesn't count being a good person. You do nothing about it. And then there's this... She says, oh, maybe I'll tell him. Maybe... Like, I can't predict the future. Maybe I'll have to tell him at some point. And it's this tantalising thing of, like, maybe I'll tell my secrets, but you know she's not going to. And it, she says, for now I will say nothing. And it really... Like, it made me think about this. Yeah, it's
0: like, if you're if you're in your 60s and you're already saying, for now I will
1: say nothing, it's like, when are you going to say it, Alice? Is it never? <laughs> like, There's this Hera Lindsay Bird line, if you listen to mine and Caroline's poetry episode of this, as you should, you will... Um, no hero Lindsay bird is a poet who i really love and she has the sign of to wake each morning and say nothing as if nothing were honesty is default oh that's really great it's great and so much of this book to me is about whether you can be honest and is anyone honest and i think maybe the only honest character is dina who is her best friend from childhood andrew imhoff's yeah. girlfriend who yeah who says what she wants and mostly she doesn't get it but she asks for what she wants and she's clean all the time about like, I want this. I don't want you to sleep with Charlie because I fancy him. And Alice is just so constantly duplicitous to her. She's constantly like, well, actually, Andrew loves me. And Dina's like, he's my boyfriend. And she's like, oh, I don't know. Alice did, uh, Andrew did write her in that note though. Yeah, but what people write in, people write things, I I mean, actually, in some senses, that's a very interesting point to kind of, kind of come to an end on is that Andrew's Andrew, this golden boy, who she's convinced that life could be perfect if they would, if they had been together, and she hadn't again killed him with her car, which is a damper, dampener on most relationships, or well, if you kill the other person, and <laughs> he, she, Dina writes this note to Andrew. They're all fourteen; they're younger, thirteen, twelve, thirteen, and the note says something like, "Who do you think is the prettiest girl in the class?" And Andrew writes back. Somebody, 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 or Alice. And Alice carries this with her as if it's the most important thing, this written down thing, even though... The most
0: romantic thing that's ever happened to her, that she's someone's second choice. She's someone's second oh, i like, a note passed in school. Second prettiest yeah. girl in
1: eighth grade. From a boy who that afternoon starts going out with her best friend. And that's Alice all over, I think. This sense that the written word, you said it, you said it, and you wrote it down matters Aww. more Kate okay, than... nash quote i know <laughs> <laughs> you said it and you wrote it down <laughs> Kate okay, nash quote for you on this day but she believes that andrew wrote it down that she was the second prettiest girl in eighth grade and she's gonna write this down and that's gonna be the truth and she's gonna get there and somehow this confession yeah. is gonna absolve her of her total impotence she is totally unable I, I, do to do what, anything. Which what just
0: occurred to me as well is that we know from this extended separate... Well she, she walks out in Charlie because he's drinking too much and he's being mean to her. She leaves him and stays with her parents, with her, their daughter, for like a month. Um, and refuses to come back until he's fixed his ways. And she, she comes back eventually. And after like many people yelling at her, and he fixes his ways. And actually becomes a born again Christian in the process, but we don't even have time to get into that now. Um, and so it's like Alice is not impotent; she just she has a line, and when it gets crossed, she like she acts, and she's fully capable of That's controlling that man point. when she wants him to. And she's but dead. apparently, yeah, she does. It's not it's not enough for the the good of the country. Apparently, no, it's not. <laughs> And, it, and like for all of her like she spends the last sort of fifty pages moralizing over the things she's done and hasn't done. But it's like ultimately, as long as this man as as long as the sex is good and he makes you laugh, you're not gonna do a damn thing.
1: Yeah, she only draws a line when the sex stops being good and he stops making her laugh.
0: Yeah. Good dick is a prison, my
1: friend. What a sentence. What a <laughs> sentence. And on that bombshell, Caroline <laughs>
0: Wow, this has been an intense hour, but I have loved every moment of it. It's an intense book, and I hope everyone please read this reads book. It. I mean, it, while well, it's ninety nine p, have.
1: but also you should buy it if it's more. Th- I would buy it again if it was up to four ninety nine on Kindle. Yeah, and I would pay full price for it in paperback. I may do that.
0: You know, I kind of want to own it. Yeah, same, same. I'm gonna go um, as soon as the bookshops are open
1: again. I'm gonna go out and buy it. That's a nice goal to have. Let's go and buy this sexy, nice. sexy book about George yeah. Bush. I'll see
0: you then. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again for doing this. See you next uh, week. I love you and
1: goodbye. I love you and goodbye.
0: This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been on who. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at therelineodonohue at gmail.com. This has been the Justice for Done Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig.